Adam, Larry. You guys talk to him. Oh, they give me no warning at all. So unprofessional. All right, everybody, we are in Revelation. This is chapter five, part three. We're going to wrap up Revelation today in chapter five. Next week, we'll enter into Revelation chapter six. And we have some uh, people here visiting and new people at campus. Welcome. And those of you who are at home and watching the archives, of course, we welcome you. We're all part of the body of Christ. Wherever we're meeting, Lord Jesus is our Savior. We're with each other. So glad you're here today. Let's begin. We'll begin with a word of prayer. We'll sing the word of God set to music. And then after that, we will sit for a minute of silence and come back and get into Revelation chapter 5, part 3. Lord, we are grateful to be here and uh, study your word and uh, for the souls and hearts and minds that have gathered. We pray spirit of truth will reign among us and the spirit of error, which we all possess, will uh, dissolve. Things I say which are wrong will be forgotten. Things I say which are in accordance with you and your spirit will be remembered. And uh, then we'll be able to move on out of here and live our week as Christians Remembering that you have saved us and we have the spirit and we're free and we're able to move about according to your will and ways and reach other people with the good news as you lead us. Help those people who are uh, trying to find their place, uh, trying to discover truth, people who are lost and uh, use us in whatever way you see fit to reach them and help us to uh, be humble when people confront us and uh, smile and laugh with them and invite them in, but never get angry. At least try not to, Lord. We need you in our lives. We pray for this now in Jesus' name, amen. disobedience many were made sinners so
Okay, chapter 5, picking it up at verse 8. We left off, remember, last week with the lamb as if or as he was slain, the lamb, uh, stepping up and taking the book from the right hand of him that was on the throne. And we talked all about that, and I made the conjecture that the one on the throne is the fullness of God, perhaps in the resurrected body of Jesus, And the lamb was the lamb that was slain as from the foundation of the world, an actual lamb standing there. Now, people disagree with that, but that's what John says. And the lamb came up and he took the the, uh, book from the right hand of him that was on the throne. Many of you have other ideas. Some of you have learned over the years. Some of you have learned them on your own. I don't discount them. I do not not accept them. I'm just teaching based on what, you know, I can figure out from this and do the same with my views. So, 
verse 8, having shown itself or himself to be the one worthy to take the scroll from the right hand of the one that is on the throne, we read, and when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. <clears throat> Falling down before the lamb is, of course, an emblem of worship. And they, the four beasts and the 24 elders, are worshiping the lamb that stood up in their midst, not the one that's on the throne here. They will worship the one that's on the throne, but the lamb stands up and the 24 elders and the four beasts worship the lamb. Uh, those who say we don't worship Jesus, uh, all they need to do is read what's happening here in chapter five and they will see that the 24 elders representing the redeemed, the church, and the four beasts are worshiping. Proskunio is the word in the Greek, which where we get the word pros, I always want to say prostate, prostrate, where we prostrate ourselves before the throne. And so these elders and the four beasts have prostrated themselves before this lamb. Uh, John says, and every one of them have harps. So we can probably assume this is reference to the 24 elders and not the four beasts having the harps. We can also assume that it's somehow connected to the fact that they're going to start worshiping, as we're going to read about that in verse 9. So here in 8, he says, these 24 elders all had harps. They fell down, proscunio, before the lamb that stood up in their midst and took the scroll from that right hand of the one that's on the throne. Now, when we talk about vials, we talk about, uh, you know, like a vial of oil. I remember when I was LDS, we used to carry these silver things with oil in them. They were vials. And, and the word here seems to be talking about the same thing in the Greek, but it actually is believed to be a shallow cup. This is really more of that contained incense, these vials. The word is thumi, thumi ah excuse me, thumi am ah, and it means there is a fragrant powder in these bowls burned for religious ceremonies. So their incense, as defined by John, uh, and John says this is what those incense represent, which are the prayers of the saints, okay? So Psalms 141.2 says, let my prayer be sent forth before you as incense. So we have a connection to the Old Testament there here to what's happening at the conclusion of the New Testament that the prayers that the 24 elders representing the church are in these, these shallow cups as incense and they're representing the prayers of believers. Now, uh, we might wonder, well, how are prayers like incense? And I can think of a few ways. You probably can too. One, uh, incense need to be lit before you can smell them. And I, you know, we might say, you know, prayers need to be lit up too. You don't just rotely say something. We just don't routinely offer it up because it's over the meal. Bless and sanctify the nourish and strengthen our bodies. It's, we light our prayer up with our heart, with our mind before God. And that's one way that, that prayers are similar to incense, and that's why we have this imagery here. Uh, another one is once it's lit up, they ascend. Incense send up a smoke that moves upward. And so they're going up to God instead of just going horizontally and hitting out into the, the world. They actually are to God. And uh, finally, we, we realize they also have a fragrance. And so scripture talks about our prayers having a fragrance in the nostrils of God, that they have a sweet smell when they're lit up from the heart and they ascend upward to him. And, and the imagery is these 24 elders representing the redeemed of the church have gathered these prayers in these bowls and they are the, the true prayers of the saints to ascend up to the nostrils of God. In Revelation chapter eight, verse three, we're gonna read about an angel which, is having, which has a golden censer very similar to this bowl, and it will say, and there was given unto this angel much incense that it should offer it with the prayers of the saints 
upon the altar before the throne. So uh, we know that there's a parallel to this in the Old Testament as, as with almost everything in the book of Revelation. What's the parallel? Well, when the um, high priest would go into the temple and he would burn incense, at the same time, the children of Israel would be offering up prayers. We have evidence of that in Luke chapter one, verses nine and 10, where it says, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the time of incense. So there's a connection there between what they did in the Old Testament, the high priest offering up incense that burned and the prayers of the congregation going up. Here's the connection between what's happening here in Revelation. So it seems that here the idea is these representatives of the church, these 24 elders are in heaven they're wearing white robes. They're crowned as priests and kings. And they are engaged. They're offering up these prayers. And it's very symbolic. So let's read through verse 9 to the end of chapter 5. That's what we'll cover today. Having the harps in hand, it says, they've fallen down on their face, proscunio, verse 9, and they sung a new song, saying, thou art worthy to take the book, and to open the seals thereof. For thou was slain and has redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and has made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. And behold, John says, and I heard a voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Same with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, everything was saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, amen. And the 24 and 20 elders fell down and worshiped him that liveth forever and ever. And that wraps up the chapter. So let's go back to verse nine and let's cover that content. And they sung a new song. So they've fallen down. They have harps in their hands. This means music making. They have bowls that are offering up incense and they start singing a new song. These are the words to the new song. Thou art worthy. They're singing this to the lamb. Thou art worthy to take the book because the lamb has just taken the book out of the right hand, right? And to open the seals thereof. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. The Hebrew practice of singing new songs when new things would occur in their history is in uh, all through, not all through, but it's through the Old Testament. In Psalms uh, chapter 40, verse three, uh, we read, and he has put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it in fear and shall trust in the Lord. And so it appears that new songs were sung as new events would unfold. Moses sang the song of Moses. Different things when the children of Israel would have victories, a new song would be sung. We know even when Jesus was in the upper room uh, before his death and passion, that they sung a, a hymn. Now, it doesn't say it was a new hymn, but we know that songs were really important to the nation of Israel. And uh, now this is something new that they're singing to. The angel asked, who's worthy to open up the seals and read the content? And John says, I wept because no man was worthy. Then a lamb that looked as if it had been slain stood up in the midst and uh, and uh, John, actually before that, John started crying because no one was worthy. One of the elders says, there is one who is worthy and he describes him. And then we, John sees this lamb stand up. In the presence of this lamb, a new song is being sung now in the heavens. 
So it's interesting. You wonder if that continues to happen. Are there new songs being presented and written? When every new event occurs in heaven, when something happens there, are these songs, or are the old songs being sung? Job 38.7 informs us that at the foundation of the world, songs were sung by the angelic beings, of course. And perhaps anytime something new is celebrated by God in heaven, a new song is sung. So here it's a song of redemption, and it's a different song than would ever be sung in heaven because had there not been a fall, had a redeemer not have been necessary, there would be no need to open up this book. There would be no need for the Messiah, so no new song would come. Perhaps this song is consummately superior to all songs sung simply because it speaks of the victory the Redeemer has had over the entire world. So we're reading about the last things in the book of Revelation, and this is one of the last things of that age only, of that age to happen. Now, it actually speaks to Jesus' divine character, and the words are, you are worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For you were slain, and you redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. That's a lot to cover, but it's a beautiful song. The singular lines of the song are 12. They could be more or less, I broke up the 12. You're worthy to take the book. You're worthy to open the seals. You were slain. You have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every kindred, tongue, nation, people, thou hast made us unto our God, kings and priests. We shall reign on the earth. What does all that mean? That's a mouthful. And John is hearing the 24 elders sing this new song in the presence of the slain lamb. So note right off the bat, and I see it this way, the song clearly delineates between the one true God and his son, the lamb. There's a clear distinction in this song between those two because the song refers to what the lamb has done to God, our God, that the lamb is a separate entity having done this on our behalf and that the lamb is honorable and now worthy for the things it will receive. I don't see how this can be excused or melded into uh, the way some people view uh, the Godhead. To me, it's clearly there's one God and he had one human son, Jesus Christ, his son. And his son brought us into relationship with the one and true God. And that is what's echoed through this song. But let's take the 12 lines of this new song and talk about them quickly. The first lyrics of the song sung by the elders and, the, and possibly the beasts are, one, thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. We've been talking about this for a few weeks. Translation, there is no other being in heaven, John says, on earth or below the earth, meaning in the realm of the dead, who was worthy to take the scroll out of the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. Now listen, to me, this clearly places Jesus, the lamb, in harmony or in line with all creatures and creations of heaven and earth and places, places him, the lamb of God, Jesus, born of a woman, born in Bethlehem, uh, born under the law, above all things. John, the angel says, who's worthy to take this scroll? And there's only one, the lamb that steps forward. There's a distinction being made here between him and all other beings ever created, ever made, ever was. Jesus, the man, was created. The word was not, but the man of Bethlehem was created, made under woman, made under the law. He is the Lamb of God, and he is receiving the honor and, uh, for what he has done for us. So on earth, listen closely, the Lamb was not God. The lamb was not God. He was the man Jesus, Christ Jesus, who Paul and Peter both refer to as the man, Jesus of Nazareth. What was in him was God, certainly. So don't think I'm not saying he wasn't divine, 
but the lamb himself bleeding there, here was not. The lamb standing there is a representative of Jesus who overcame and Jesus who saved the human race and Jesus who came from above as God's only human son. But Jesus nonetheless, born of a woman, born under the law. We note the lamb is not sitting on the one throne here. The lamb stood up and the lamb went forward to take the scroll. That lamb is representative of the one who came to earth, the one who lived like us, the one who suffered like us. He is worthy to take that scroll. And the lamb stood up in the midst of the 24 elders in the midst of the church. That's very symbolic. The angel asked, who's worthy? And a lamb, as if it had been slain, John says, so we believe it was bloody and beaten, stands in the midst and took in its mouth the very words of God. But John Stephen pointed out last week that uh, the scroll represents the word of God, that the lamb took God's words in its mouth. That's how a lamb would take it. Didn't, wouldn't use his, not paws, hooves to take it in his mouth. And so Jesus, when he walked this earth, he spoke the words of God among us. So the lamb takes the word of God in his mouth and he's gonna reveal more things to us as he is supposed to. So only the lamb of God is worthy, the first stanza of the new song. The second line gives us more detail for the reasons of the lamb's worthiness. It says, you are worthy because you were slain, right? Considering his life lived and perhaps other factors, it seems improbable that the lamb was only worthy because it was slain. And perhaps this single phrase, it's the most conspicuous of his sacrifices that the lamb gave to the world, was slain. But the lamb did many other things that made it worthy, him worthy to receive uh, the scroll. You know, there are other people in the course of human history who have sacrificed their lives for others. They've given their life, they were killed for the benefit of other people. That didn't make them worthy to take the scroll. So that line is encompassing really all. It's a metonym for all that he did. You were slain, meaning you died to your will. You didn't sin. You obeyed your father. You gave your life. You shed your blood. You turned the other cheek. All of that encompassed in that thing, for you were slain. That's why you're worthy. We might add in the fact that in this sacrifice, there was utter and complete innocence. So where someone else may give their life for another, they're not innocent. It's not an innocent, uh, a clear sacrifice in the sense of innocence being lost. We all have sin. We save someone else. It's a magnanimous act and God may love that or whatever, but it's not the same as Christ giving his life. He never had to die. There was no sin in him, either from, from birth, if you believe in, in original sin, or from his actions. He was clean. He could have lived forever, but he offered up his life. So... We add in the fact that it was complete innocence, something no other being could offer as a sacrificial sacrifice. The next line of the song, however, amplifies the impact of this slaughter. It says, you have been slain and have redeemed us to God. Now that is a fascinating concept of what Jesus has done for us. He's redeemed us to God. That word redeemed uh, in the Greek is really, it comes from the word agora. And what is the word? Uh, uh, agorazo, agorazo. And in there you can hear agora. You know what an agora is? You hear of agoraphobia? You're fearful of public places? Well, in Greek, an agora is just a market. It was just, I'm going to the market. I'm going to the agora. So when it says he's redeemed us to God, redeemed us is agorazo. And what it really is saying is Jesus went to the marketplace and purchased us on behalf of God. That's what that word really encompasses. He went and he bought us and gave us to God. So agorizo, that the purchase was made through his slain uh, life, through his shed blood on our behalf. He went to the marketplace and bought us. The question we might ask, ask is, did Jesus go to the market and buy everyone uh, for God? Or did he just go to the market and buy a few? Big debate. 
Go to the Christian colleges today. Most professors would teach he only bought a few. He did not buy this world. That is a current popular teaching in the faith, which I personally don't agree with in the least. In uh, the first verse of 2 Peter, Peter says, listen to this. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privately shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. So here we have one evidence of many that when Christ went to the marketplace with his own life and shed his own blood, he purchased the world. It was a universal purchase in terms of humanity and not just singular of the few. The purchase was for all, even for false prophets and false teachers who denied that the Lord bought them, Peter says. That word bought them is agorizo, the same word that's used here in Revelation of how he has redeemed us. Redeemed, bought, I wanna redeem this coupon, I bring this coupon to you, I get a free grapefruit, and so that's what he did. He came and redeemed with his blood us, and that took us back to our God. So that's why the, the fourth line is, you have redeemed us to God. That's what the Lamb's purpose was. And, but those who are singing this new song are those who have embraced his slaughter and the purchase. There's the difference. There has to be a reception of the gift by the person. We're all on the shelves of the marketplace. Jesus comes in. He says, I'll buy the whole store, the whole human race. And there's just some who are on those shelves who say, no, I don't want to go with you. I'm not coming with you right now is my, the way I would see it. So he takes who will come with him and gives them to God. Those ones who are remaining, well, they're going to have some kind of special delivery. I'm not sure what it is, but they were bought. And if they were bought by his blood, I'm going to take the opposite view of what's taught in the colleges. If they were bought by his blood, he will have the victory of redeeming them all to the Father. How that works, I don't know. To believers, it's obvious and that's why we gather together and study and believe and things like that. Those who don't believe he, his purchase was viable or whatever, another topic. But these are the ones, the, 12, the 24 elders representing the redeemed, the church, uh, who are openly worshiping him uh, because of what he's done. Having purchased us, we are buying through him we are, all of us, by and through him, Christ Jesus, the Lamb of God, gods. We are gods. Not we are gods, we are his. Uh, as a result, we read in 2 Corinthians 5.15, it says, and that he died for all, another one of those passages, that they which live should not henceforth live to themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. So when you leave the marketplace and Jesus care and he wheels you to the Father, the, the thinking is you are not your own anymore. You have been bought for a price. You've been purchased. And in the cart of Jesus, he takes it to his Father and says, here, <coughs> we, <coughs> excuse me, are gods now. And therefore we are not, uh, we are at liberty, but under the Spirit, we are not at liberty to do what we want because we are now his. In uh, 1 Peter 4.2, it says that we no longer should live the rest of the time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. Why? Because he's purchased us through his son. So, <clears throat> sorry, Christ having purchased us for God by his blood has made God our father. And we now under this ownership are obliged if we love him, if we trust him, if he's our God and King, to live according to his will and not our own. In this, the elder song, uh, they sing the new song, the fifth line is a redundancy to what we've just talked about and said, by thy blood, you have redeemed us to God by your blood. He was slain, the blood was shed and uh, that is how he did it. But let me make a point here and I was talking about this with uh, uh, John Tanny the other day and he, the point, he brought up the point, human beings have a difficult time just taking esoteric ideas 
and principles and applying them to our lives. It's just, there's something about us that we, we need tangible things to occur for us to really be able to uh, uh, apply them to ourselves. And so there must be a reason in the annals of the justice and equity of God for him to take on human flesh and blood, live a perfect life, and then offer that human life up. A lot of critics say, what's the barbaric nature of Christ having to come and live and die and be brutally tortured? I mean, and I hear, that's the tone that they take. What's, the, what's all that about? That's ancient, ar- archaic thinking that blood has to be shed for sins. I mean, why couldn't God just say the sins are forgiven, right? Well, the fact is from Moses, he tells us that there is life in our blood. There is, that's where the life is. And we also read that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So we know that the thing to propitiate for our sin had to have occurred in this realm, not that one. Our lives had to be ransomed. We had to be redeemed by Christ coming into this realm and shedding his blood for the purchase to be effective because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So therefore, it must be a rule based on whatever it is that God has that this had to take place. And when scoffers say it's not necessary, it just makes me laugh. So his sacrifice took place in real time and real material with real suffering and real loss of life on our behalf. And since we exist in time and space, it seems like we should in time and in space receive what he gave us. That we shouldn't be holding on to an afterlife where our flesh and blood has not been redeemed in that sense. Our spirits are then just existing. So there could be something to the effect, the uh, idea that Jesus came and gave his life here in real time. And it's in real time we need to recognize that because if you go beyond this, and expect it, maybe it's much more difficult for you to bow. So the line, by thy blood, is sort of obvious to us believers, but it really is very important to God's redemption of the world through his son and to receive it while we're in flesh and blood. Very important. That's why we share the message. So he says, thou art worthy to take the book and open the seals thereof, for you were slain and has redeemed us to God by thy blood. Let me read verses six through nine. And then he says, out of every kindred, tongue, people, and nation. The King James is difficult in the way it says this. It's uh, because it says, you have redeemed us to God by thy blood out of. uh, And so really what it's saying is, you have reached into every kindred, every tongue, every people, every nation, and have redeemed us, Lamb of God. Uh, So the 24 elders are making clear that the redeemed who Jesus purchased with his blood for God came and will continue to come from every fule, every kindred, every tongue glossa, every people, laos, and every nation, ethnos. Every single one, you have done it. I think that this was included, one, so that the Jews didn't think, of course, we're the only ones, still think that, even though this is late in the game, But the verbiage is taken straight out of the Old Testament. And essentially it's saying there's no limitations on who God is saving and redeeming from the marketplace. So, and then we go to Numbers 10 and through 12 of of the song. And has made us unto our God kings and priests. Ooh, the Mormons ran with this one. And we shall reign on earth. So, you know, Smith with his imagination and his uh, ability to synthesize things, took kings and priests, incorporated into their temple ceremony, is blessing people to become kings and priests based off verbiage like this in scripture. So let's look at the idea of there being a nation of kings and priests. Where does it come from? It goes all the way back to the Old Testament, of course, right? In Exodus 19.6, God says through Moses to the children of Israel, you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests. Kingdom of priests. So we have a kingdom where there's kings and priests and a holy nation. These are the words with, uh, you shall speak to the children of Israel, he says to Moses. So obviously as a material type, as a material type 
for a future spiritual condition. God elected the nation of Israel and to serve as a picture of what would ultimately come about by the redeemed through the blood of Christ. That Christ's purpose in saving us from every nation, kindred, tongue, and people is to bring to him a nation of kings and priests. As it says here in Revelation. So in Revelation, we're reading the fulfillment of all things. And um, so they sing, you have made unto us, you have made us unto our God, lamb, you lamb, have made us unto our God, kings and priests. Uh, speaking to the body, Peter says in uh, 1 Peter 2.9, you'll recognize this, two believers, you are a chosen generation a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you would show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So right there, we are told male and female, no difference that we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, okay? This is different from the nation of Israel and how they were kings and priests. The real question to this uh, song in Revelation is what does it mean when they say, and you've made us unto our God, kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Because that line uh, opens us up to a lot of ideas and a lot of doctrines uh, that have come about. The key is the way it's translated. Almost every translation says it the way you're reading it in your scripture, because I doubt any of you have a Weymouth's translation, but it's we shall reign on or upon the earth. And so what it makes people think is that in the millennium, there is going to be believers reigning as kings and priests over Christ's kingdom, with Christ being the ultimate authority. There are people who believe in something called kingdom now, where Christians today are doing everything possible to bring about a political system where we are in charge of Washington and the world and the UN, and we will be kings and priests running Christ's kingdom as it envelops the whole world. They're called Kingdom Now believers, very politically active and believe using this type of uh, uh, verse that this is one of the things that we're for. But I personally read... Uh, this through the Weymouth, which is a literal translation of the Greek. And he says, and we shall reign over the earth. Uh, where the other translations say on or upon. Now, uh, the LDS have established themselves as the reigning force on the earth. That is why they, I mean, they have people in so many facets of government today. They've been very effective at doing this. They, are, they have, were instituted to be the reigning force of kings and priests through their priesthood on this very earth. Um, of course, the Catholics gave a good go of it through uh, right after Constantine, up through a thousand years, they had a go of it, didn't work. Uh, Church of England has tried. Um, so kingdom now folks are trying now. But remember, Jesus said plainly, my kingdom is not of this world. So his kingdom is not of this world. It's hard to believe that his kingdom is going to be governed here on this earth through actual kings and priests sitting in positions of authority. Uh, and remember what he says in Luke 17. It, we read, and when he was demanded of the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God should come, he was confronted with this question. He answered and said unto them, listen to this, the kingdom of God comes not with observation, meaning you're not gonna see it. You aren't going to see the kingdom overcoming all the earth. This comes not with observation, neither shall they say, look here, look there. You aren't gonna see it. Ready? Then he gives the line, Tolstoy popularized in uh, some of his writings. Behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Now we're talking about the kingdom that is not of this world that he reigns over. And so I like Weymouth's translation that we will be kings and priests reigning over this spiritually, over versus in and through it, 
We will be reigning over it spiritually. How? We'll be salt and light to this earth. We will bring about the message of Christ to others. We will live in peace and we will turn the other cheek. True Christians will learn to love. True, true Christians will be sacrificial. True Christians will glorify God by using the talents he's given them. True Christians will do all of these things, but that it's the invisible spirit within them that will be, will be reigning and not some uh, literal political or material uh, uh, system. So thou hast made us uh, unto our gods, kings and priests, and we shall reign over the earth. Uh, add in the fact that the new Jerusalem is spiritual. We'll be proving that as we get into Revelation. The new Jerusalem is spiritual. It talks about that when we cross-reference Revelation and what's said in Luke. And I tend to see as Christ's kingdom as spiritually discerned, realized, and the literal application um, of a literal, actual material kingdom is really a stretch. So even though it sounds like that, we could take that literally, that line, I think you should challenge it. Uh, I am familiar with the words of Daniel in Daniel chapter seven. It says, and the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. When people read the Old Testament and they read Daniel chapter seven, they say, this, see, it is a literal kingdom. And you can read that with spiritual eyes and just say, that's all spiritual. And if you do, I think you'll be more at peace. So uh, verse 11 in Revelation 5, and I beheld, John says, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. And the number of them, speaking of the angels, was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. If you're curious about this, what that means, you should watch our milk from this morning because we covered what a thousand means in a Hebrew, a Hebrew idiom. A thousand simply is representative of the total number. Our kids, I used this example this morning, will come home and you'll say, how was the party? And your kid says, there was a bajillion kids there. Okay, that is the modern day way to say thousands upon thousands upon thousands. It's the Hebrew way of describing. It does not mean 1,000 exactly. So when he says here in verse 11, and the number of the angels was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, don't get a calculator out. Realize that's 100 million, 10,000 times 10,000, plus in addition, thousands upon thousands. All John is saying is the angelic host was innumerable. Forget about it. There was a heck of a lot of them there, Okay. Uh, I have some uh, examples of that. I'll just reference them. Psalm 68, 17, Deuteronomy 33, 2, 1 Kings 22, 19. They all talk about Daniel 7, 10. They all talk about the thousands and the thousands. And like this morning, we, we cited a passage from Psalm that said, God is the God of all beasts. He's the God of the cattle on a thousand hills. And we pointed out that all those poor cattle on the thousand and one and thousand and two and thousand and three hills are not his, that that's just not true. A thousand represents all the hills, okay? That'll help you when we get later into a revelation when you think about it. Verse 12, they continue to sing. Listen to this now. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Now, people who say Jesus was God in the preexistent state and he came and he lived as God and he died as God, I don't understand this, how the angels now are saying the lamb is now worthy because it was slain to receive, to get power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and blessing. If the lamb was God, is God, forever will be God. The lamb is not worthy to receive. The lamb is power. The lamb is wisdom, riches, strength, honor, glory, and blessing. But instead we have here in Revelation, the lamb who stood up as the one who could take the scroll, he was the one where they are saying, you're worthy because you've accomplished this by giving your life as a human. You've accomplished this by overcoming your will the only human son of God, you went forth for us, filled with God, and you did your job. And because of that, you are filled with, uh, you are 
uh, in line, so to speak, to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and glory and uh, honor and blessing. So uh, now the song is at the end of the age, the son worthy, uh, whereas prior to his death, listen closely, prior to his resurrection, he was merely, and I say this with great caution, just take it for what it's worth, the son of God, the only human son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, was merely God's only human son. Now, I know merely is a huge thing because that means everything, right? But, but he was not God's human son with power. He was not God's human son yet with riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, blessing, uh, power. He hadn't received that yet. That's proven through scripture. It's proven for the, through what we're reading here. Romans 1, 3, 4 says the following. Listen to this closely. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. It was through the resurrection of the dead that the lamb of God was seen as the son of God with power. Prior to that, he was not the recipient of all those attributes that the 12 elders are singing that he's worthy to receive now. Cannot get around that. I don't know how people get around it other than just to insert hyperbole that says, no, he was everything. He had everything. He did everything. And, and uh, he was actually fully, completely God as Jesus of Nazareth. No way. He had to overcome his flesh by obedience through the things he suffered. So uh, I'm not saying he didn't have the fullness of God in him. He did. That's how he was able to get through this fleshly world and not sin and rebel against his father. But he was bringing that flesh through this mortal, his mortal life with him, dragging it with him. And he was making that flesh submit to the will of his father. And after he had done that, that lamb stood up in the midst of the 24 elders and they threw it down and said, you are worthy to receive. That means now all these things. Marked difference than what God's only human son was at birth. At birth, he had the, shall we say, the right. He knew there would be an inheritance that only he would get, but we're gonna be joint heirs with him if we follow him, so that's even not true. Here John witnesses right before the end of all things, which was at hand, the angels admitting that all that the lamb overcame was now worthy to receive dunamis, that's power, uh, Plutos, riches, Sophia, wisdom, Ishkus, strength, Time, honor, Doxa, glory, and Eulogia, blessings. We would be mistaken to suggest that when Jesus was born in the manger, but walking the earth, even when he was laid down in the grave, he had yet to be worthy to take that scroll from his father's hand. He was yet to be worthy to receive Dunamis, Pluto, Sophia, Ishkos, and all those other things because he had not yet fulfilled what he came to do. The idea of fullness of God is really tough in the man Jesus when you start talking about it relative to this stuff. So for this reason, I have a very hard time saying Jesus of Nazareth, born of a woman, born in the law, was fully God. That Jesus of Nazareth, the man with the long hair and the beard that we see in pictures, if that's what he looked like, lived with his father before this life, then came down and took on a, uh, the body that looked like his spirit. I have a real hard time with all of that. What I don't have a hard time with is God sent him his word his word became flesh. This was his only human son who walked the earth and overcame all things on behalf of the human race. He did it for us out of love for his father first, love for humankind second. And now here in Revelation, he is being honored as the one worthy to receive everything that the father has. See, so it's in the state of capacity that Jesus is seen in Revelation chapter one. You remember we studied it. In Revelation chapter one, John sees Jesus. He sees him in a way John did not know Jesus by. 
He sees his feet as brazen brass on with fire. He sees his eyes glow, his hair, just amazing. And he witnesses this. And John is like, this is something I've never seen before. The guy I knew had brown hair and his eyes were, you know, brown. His feet, we had to wash them. This is a different being now. And that's what we're seeing. And it's been throughout most of early Christian history, the idea of uh, <clears throat> receiving what God has for us. The promise, and I believe in this fully, is not deification, even though that's the word that's used by many of the early church writers, is joint heir with Christ. Our flesh and blood of the human race, he, God through him, led us through this pack. He ascended, he received it all. And joint heirship is promised. Joint heir, co-heirs with all the son has for those who look to Christ by faith, by faith. That is the promise. So what we are seeing happening here will occur to those who trusted in him. I believe that completely. It won't be those who were superior in strength or something, just those who walked by faith, chose him, lived their life according to him. Glory we cannot fathom awaits those who did that. I believe that glory is bestowed immediately upon death. You have immediate resurrection. You have immediate glory and you are in that realm. I don't believe we're waiting for all that to occur still, but that's my, my stance. Verse 13, and every creature, John says, which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying. So we're talking here in the presence, every creature is saying, and I'm gonna read what it says. This is a little bit different of a quote because now every creature that's under the earth and in the sea is mentioned here. That's not mentioned before. And they are saying blessing and honor and glory and power to him that sitteth on the throne. This is the first time the one on the throne is mentioned. Blessed is the one that sits on the throne and unto the lamb forever and ever. So we have dual honor being given here. And it's a unique addition given by the praise of all creatures that John hears. According to John, he hears them heap praises and blessing and honor and glory and power unto them. He says, every creature under the sea, on earth, in heaven, in the sea, under the earth, every creature. To me, that is the consummate heart of creation, is praising God and his son for the redemptive value of what the lamb has done. Him sitting on the throne and lamb forever and ever. All the universe was heard by John ascribing praise to the one on the throne and to, and to the lamb as it was standing there slain. Whether literal or representational, all forms of creation were heard. Verse 14, last verse, and the four beasts said, amen. That means so be it. That's it, we're, we're with it. And the four and 20 elders fell down. I'm gonna add again there because this is the second time and worshiped him that lives forever and ever. The final verse is intriguing because John does not say that the 24 elders here fell down and worshiped the lamb anymore. All it says is that they worship, worship him that liveth forever and ever. In my mind, could be wrong. The lamb has fulfilled its purpose. The lamb of God has done its job. The blood that it was the slain nature of is over. The one on the throne, the one true God, the lamb has done its job. And so here the four and 20 elders fall down and worship him that liveth forever and ever, singular, not more anymore. It's turned to him. That was the lamb's purpose. In verse eight, they fell down before the lamb. But now at this point, all praise and worship is directed to him, the lamb having done uh, his job. So questions, comments, insights. Microphone being passed. We have a guest that I heard was coming. Is he still here? You want to invite him if he has a comment? He's welcome to come share it. Anybody else along the way? Brother John? Okay. Yeah, this, uh, this study, can you hear me? This study is real good. 
Uh, one thing I wanted to say was uh, in our studies on Thursday, we, Psalms 82, God is calling us gods, little gods. Oh, yeah. And Jesus does too. And then uh, the word wor world and the word earth does not mean the same thing. Right. Uh, everybody's in their own world and that world belongs to Satan. And Jesus says, I'm not of this world. Mm. So that's anyway. Very good. Thank you, John. Anybody else? Where's our guest? All right, you've had some comments. We welcome you to the microphone, brother. I didn't know I was a guest. Sean, you know me. I've been yeah. here for a while. Oh, but I just heard that you had many public comments and that you were coming yeah, to I bring do. a news Yeah, I do. I was thinking about sharing it more uh, through social media. My, my biggest concern, um, I didn't get to hear the teaching today. Um, I just stopped by today to, uh, you know, first talk to one of my friends here. I won't mention their names, but also just more in the discussion, maybe opening up the realm about uh, universalism and, um, and hell. The doctrine of hell. Um, I'm a futurist, and I believe that hell is eternal. And so I just want to open up the discussion for that more, I guess. But unfortunately, I didn't get to hear so much of the teaching today. I was it's more right. in the back. It's all the same. Yeah. But I just want to say from the pulpit, as a, as a futurist and hell is eternal guy, we love you. Well, of course. You may share that with many others in here, and you're always welcome to campus. Sure. To question or voice the opinion. And that's exactly what I share with everyone else, man. Awesome, brother. Amazing ministry. Thanks, brother. Good to have you. Thank you. Anybody else? All right. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and uh, your spirit that helps us understand it. Please help us to take it in. The things that are applicable to our life here, to our life there, and uh, move us to closer toward your throne to uh, worship you in spirit and in truth, always in truth. And where we're wrong, you know, guide us, and help, but help us get along as we move forward and love each other as we, uh, as we exchange thoughts and ideas. Help us with other Christians in the valley, uh, people we may attend church with or people that we associate with, that we will let the, your love shine through and always um, take precedence over knowledge or debate. We pray for uh, the people on the list. We pray for Diane and the kidney procedure she faces this week for Diana and her shoulder and hip injuries, the work and repair that's being done on them. We pray for Liz and her continued recovery from the infection that's been in her body and back for so many years. Uh, we pray for the Wangsgard family, for Rex and Ty and for Elaine and then uh, anybody else who uh, is missing and mourning over the passing of Heidi our sister and um, our friend. And we pray that your peace will continue to abide as she is missed so greatly. And um, there are many people whose hearts are sorrowful and mourning and having difficulty with a number of things. And we just pray that you'll make yourself known, that you will shine a light into their heart. They will recognize your presence and they will seek to walk with you and not with the things of this world. Bless us now as we exit out of here that we will be Christians to our neighbors. We will be known by the love that we share, by the faith that we walk by. In Jesus' name, amen. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord.